Welcome to another episode of Points of Information, the DAV's monthly podcast for debaters and adjudicators across the state of Victoria. As you can see, I'm back again. That's Izzy Leach from the DAV office. I'm the Junior Programs and Public Speaking Administrator, and I've been on your podcast many times. Now I'll hand back to Alexander, our gracious host. Yes, and of course you can still hear me. I am Alexander, the Media and Publications Office. And we have another new voice in the room with us today, that of the fabulous Joel. Hi, I'm Joel. I'm just fresh from organising the Australian Individual Debating and Public Speaking Championships. I'm also an adjudicator and trainer with the DAV. Excellent. Well then, straight into it. As we've already covered in previous episodes, the schools competition is all but wrapped up and that leaves us right in the middle of the junior secondary competition. Some of our older debaters might look back fondly on the times when they were in the JSP program themselves and some of our other debaters might find themselves in the middle of it or about to embark on it. I know there's a few regions that have yet to start. It's all a bit... Yes, it's a bit of a funny one, the JSP. So we have five regions that have already finished and (laughs) eight regions that will be starting next term. So I thought we'd take the time to sort of do not so much an extension but more of a complement to some of the training that's done with the JSP program. So for those that might not be aware, during the JSP program, the first round or the first night rather, night zero or one, depending on how you count them. It's very confusing. It is very confusing. Um, The training night. The training (laughs) night, (laughs) where we basically have all the debaters come in and we go, okay, most of you probably have not debated before, some of you have, so let's go through the basics. Okay, so if you haven't yet done the training round because you're one of the eight regions that's yet to start, this might be a little bit for you but for those of you that have I'm hoping that this is going to be a sort of nice addition to that to give you some extra tips and advice to go out there and brim with confidence at your next debate. Junior BP is coming up in October so that's another good chance for you to use these skills in BP or the British Parliamentary Competition is a wonderful competition it's lots of fun. Oh very true very true Make sure that if you learn anything new from this podcast when you are in your round two training session, feel free to correct any of the three of us who are all running training sessions next term. (laughs) But didn't you say on the podcast is what I'm looking forward to hearing plenty of. I know this is very true for me, but a few different trainers probably have different philosophies on this I like to be a bit more interactive with the people in front of me and while there's here's what you're supposed to say during the round two training I often structure it okay what has your adjudicator said you during round one and maybe we will have a look at uh, some of the feedback that your adjudicator from round one has given you and go over that specifically when I was training in Thomastown the other week I spent a whole section of time talking about manner because that was what a lot of the debaters wanted to hear about. So I did a whole session on manner and how to sound good and use emotions in your speech and where to use gestures and how not to have massive gestures that make people confused. No, absolutely. I think that the round two session is really important for addressing a lot of the questions that people have. And I think that that's why it's really good to cover some of this material on the podcast so that we can add a little bit of supplementary stuff for those who spent a lot of their session talking about manner because that's what they were struggling with, who might now want 
to look at things like rebuttal, things like definitions, which I, I believe is what we have in store for us today. So shall we jump right into the first thing? Yes, I think we should. Topics and definitions. It's I feel it's one of the most easy things to get started on, but I think it's a bit more involved trying to get them sort of flowing well. There's a lot of students out there that do a really good job at having a go at trying to, you know, work out what a definition is, what are we trying to talk about? But sometimes I just can't help but feel that they're a little bit maybe uncertain or maybe they're just not quite getting it. So I felt it would be helpful to go through some of the basics, real basics of what a definition is and then to expound on that by looking at, okay, how do we make a good definition as opposed to just something that satisfies the criteria for this debate? Absolutely. Now, we're not going to be breaking down the topics that you are actually debating because we don't want to provide a little any uh, unfair advantages, although I personally feel if you listen to the podcast, you deserve an advantage. <laughs> we may have some reference to them. So the three topics for the JSP this year are that we should ban junk food in schools, that we should value literature more than science, and that we should restrict the driver's licenses of senior citizens. So that's a few different types of topic that we have there. When it comes to a definition, the type of topic doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're trying to make a change or not when we're looking at our definition, because we are really just explaining what the topic means, right? So not word by word. Joel, you know, uh, let's look at a topic that parks are better than car parks. You know what all those words mean, right? I do, generally speaking. So you don't, you don't need me as a debater to stand up and explain to you a car park is a space of land in which a car may park itself or may be parked for any period of time, sometimes ticketed, sometimes free. You don't need me to do that in my definition? No, nor define better. That is also another word that we don't really need to define. We should use other techniques to explain that, really. And we'll get into that probably a little bit later. So I think the big myth here that we're trying to bust is that there are a lot of students that define the topic by literally using the word define to define the topic, which is they're getting the dictionary, the great book that defines every word in the English language, and then they're just reading out what the definition is, which isn't what the whole point of a, de of a definition is about. The point of a definition is to set down once and for all what specifically are we talking about. And if that's a bit of a confusing concept for you, then ask yourself, what is the topic trying to achieve? And being clear as to what a car park is doesn't really help you achieve that. It might be very clear, perhaps, if you've never seen a car park before, but I'm hoping that everyone has seen or at least know how a car park works. I feel like you've seen a car park at the school you're debating at. Yes, and I feel like you've also <laughs> seen a park on the drive to yeah. or the journey to the school you're also debating at. So if we've looked at what a bad definition might be, going too far into each term, what do we think a good definition should look like? Well, I always personally tell debaters that they should define the words that they would need to explain to someone who's a 10-year-old and use the language that you would use to explain it to a 10-year-old, because that's what will make sense to most people. And if you keep it at that level, you're not going too far either way into the dictionary and making it not very useful. You're just making it clear, this is what these things mean if you have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. 
And I think that it's really important to try and fit your definition into one sentence if you can. It's really just a restating of the topic, right? So if you're the affirmative team, we believe that land set aside for public use is better than multi-story buildings or lots for parking cars, right? So we've just had a brief explanation of what we think those two sort of ideas are, and we just put it in one sentence, literally just reset the topic, but in a way that clarified a little bit. My favorite example for definitions is that we should ban smoking because what, can, what constitutes smoking is ever-evolving, particularly these days with vaping. So when you are talking about that we should ban smoking, you need to just make it clear what kind of smoking you're referring to. What do you mean by smoking? Usually you don't want to make the definition that we would ban the smoking of meats, like smoked ham and smoked salmon, but rather that we would ban the smoking of tobacco products or vaping. I don't know how you define vaping. I don't know how to actually explain what vaping is. E-cigarettes. Yeah. Basically, basically heating heating a liquid rather than burning it until it makes smoke. It's but yeah, so where, there, where there might be a little bit of a grey area, that's where you really want to make sure that you've got it clarified. The other thing we want to make sure with our definitions is that they are what the average reasonable person would expect the definition to be. So with the smoking topic, the problem we're probably trying to solve is something to do with tobacco products, not so much the smoking of salmon. So you want to be doing what the reasonable person's expecting us to talk about, which is smoking like cigarettes. So we don't want to go with an unfair, unreasonable definition that's trying to trick people. We want to go with what makes it fair and a fun debate. Mm, absolutely. You're not going to win a debate just by being tricky with the definition. You will actually lose points for being tricky with the definition because it creates an unfair situation and it's not a good debate and it's not good for the adjudicator It's either. difficult to debate. It makes it difficult for our position. Their arguments are just going to become... And you have to rebut that. Mm, and also, then you have to respond to that and it just makes... It has this flow and effect where each consecutive speaker gets consecutively worse and it reflects bad on both teams. So it's not even in your own best interest to do that. That's true. It's going to be really hard for you to think of reasons why we should ban smoked salmon because there's not really anything wrong with, with smoked salmon. I mean, maybe, but... I wouldn't it's, put it past tricky. a vegan. <laughs> it's tricky. It's much harder than banning smoking. All right, so shall we move on to look at what comes next on some topics with the definition? On some topics, yes. The next thing is something that I'm always a bit hesitant about talking about in the JSP competition or the JSP program is models. And that's because it's a very good thing for some of the teams that are doing well to sort of start looking into, start trying, start experimenting with them. But if the team, if I don't think the team's perhaps grasped the basics as well as they probably could have, I'd be inclined to say maybe focus on getting their raw essentials done well before you move on to the difficult things. You know, don't try running before you can uh, walk. Don't swim before you can... Walk. walk. Um, <laughs> I think it's really important to acknowledge that models are relatively new in the world of debating. So in the most recent version of the Australia-Asia Debating Guide, which is the rule book that covers the competitions in Victoria, models are not mentioned 
And that was from the early 2000s, I believe. The reason that models aren't mentioned is because they didn't exist yet. No one was using them. So models are not compulsory. You can win a debate without a model, even in a debate where you might expect to find a model. But models can be very helpful. So let's start by talking about what exactly a model is. Joel, I feel like you'd be good at this. Yes, I've explained this to many groups. A model is about how you wish to implement the topic. And sometimes that is useful and sometimes that is clear. It should never be too complicated. It should never have three tier systems. It should just try and do everything. Absolutely no tiers. I think I've mentioned this in um, a previous podcast, but I've brought in, I brought in a tiered model when I was in high school and it was a nightmare. As I always tell people, models with tiers only end in tears. If you've never heard of the word model before, which is if you're a JSP debater, probably most of you, a model is basically saying, if we did, if we did what the definition said, what would that look like? And the important thing here is sometimes the definition or the topic doesn't tell you to do something. So the important thing here is some topics just aren't model topics. You can't really introduce a model for them. So you shouldn't be thinking about, oh, I heard models on this podcast I listened to about debating. We need them for all our future mm -hmm. debates. There are some out there that aren't suitable for models. Exactly. And we've got a, we've got a list of topics here. We've got three example topics. So I thought we what we'd at. try and do is for each of these topics, we'd try and come up with three possible models we could make for each of these topics because models is one way that you could implement the topic, but it is not necessarily the only way. There are some topics where maybe there's only a limited number of ways you could introduce a model, and there are some where there are very different ways in which you could introduce a model for a debate. All right, should we start with the first one? That Australia should become a republic. So, if we were the affirmative team and we wanted to come up with a model for this topic, what would that model look like? What do you think, Joel? You strike me as someone who knows a lot about republics. Well, as someone who has thought about this a lot, yeah, it, it comes down to what is the big change we want to make to our political system. One thing we have to remember is we don't want to get too far into the detail and the big change we want to say is we're going to replace the Governor-General with an elected President. Everything else stays the same. That would probably be the model I would go with if I even went with a model for this topic. So if you structured that like you just were about to present the model to an audience, how would you say that in one or two sentences with no tears? Our model for this debate is that we would replace the position of Governor-General with an elected president. Yep, that easy. Super simple, one sentence, perfect model. So I think that's brilliant. Shall we look at the second topic? The second topic, that we regret the rise of the sharing economy. Well, the, before we even talk about a model, I just want to clarify what exactly the sharing economy means yes. because we haven't provided a definition. So the sharing economy refers to things like Uber and Airbnb where people are sharing their personal... They're either sharing their time in the case of a service like Uber where they're giving or they're providing their time to drive a car for you or they're sharing something that they physically own, like their house or their holiday house in the case of Airbnb. Exactly. So what we mean is we regret the rise of things like Uber and Airbnb, things that are replacing the more traditional forms of those things, hotels, like taxis and taxis. hotels. But we regret the rise of the sharing economy. Now, where is the model in that? I don't think there is one. What do you think, Joel? 
Well, there isn't a model, but as Mitchell Dye would tell you, you can always set up tests and benchmarks, but we won't get too much into that, mm. I don't think. So mm. when you're saying we regret, you aren't trying to make a change. So you don't need to bring in a model, right? You don't need to explain a model because you're not creating a change. So you don't need to show what that change so would look like. I think at this point, it would be helpful for some of the newer debaters to take a step back and have a brief look at topics for a second. There are broadly speaking two types of topics you will get. Empirical, empirical being the fancy word for evidence-based, and normative, where you're saying we should do something. And every topic you will ever see will fall into one of these two categories. Generally normative topics lend themselves well to models because you can say how are we going to do this. Whereas empirical, you're saying, how are we measuring this? You don't really have a model for how you will implement that. Exactly. And that's why you have something like, you can have something like a benchmark or a test because you're measuring something. When I was in Year 12, we did the topic of the Australian government has failed Indigenous Australians. And what we did one. there was we set a benchmark of what failure was. The affirmative team needs to show, well, this is what it would look like if the government had failed. And they have, <laughs> right? This is what it would look like if they had failed. And they it does look like that, so they have failed. And they then expanded on how it looked like that, why that was a failure. So that's where you're looking at your benchmark. This topic was actually a topic that I was given. Yeah, we had this topic in B grade and we were looking at tests in terms of what is the impact this is having on people who are part of the system and what effect is this having on traditionally existing economies? And if we can prove that both of those are going downwards, we have won this debate. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good. So the takeaway message from this topic, that we regret the rise of the sharing economy, is that not all topics have a model associated with them. So before you start dreaming up the model you want for your debate, it is worth asking yourself the basic question, does this topic even have a model mm. that could be applied to it? And hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to all the JSP debaters out there, one of your topics is empirical mm. and therefore does not need a model. Mm. So, yes, after this podcast, go and double-check on what your topics are and see whether you think all of them do need a model and which ones maybe might not. So I want to talk about one last topic example, which is my favourite topic that Australia should introduce compulsory military service. <laughs> this is a brilliant topic to discuss when looking at models because there are so many different kinds of models. I obviously have a model in mind because I love this topic so much. Do either of you have a model you'd like to run? I set this topic at the Australian Individual Debating and Public Speaking <laughs> Championships and one of the models that came up was based on the German National Service which includes environmental national service. So you oh. can go and do, like, working in fields with the army instead of necessarily doing any sort of running around and guns and I was, stuff. I was going to say I was in South Korea a year or two ago. Obviously a very active part of the world with the uh, border crossing along the peninsula there that is technically still a war zone. They have a very active military and, of course... They've, they've got four components when you do your military service, or I'll say service, not military service, because you can do it as part of the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, or the police force. 
So they have a massive police force. You can look up the photos online and it is staggering the number of police officers they have just because it's mandatory for most most people choose to do their service in the police force. Yeah, no, I think there are a few Asian countries who include the police force as part of mm. their compulsory service. There are lots of countries all over the world that still use compulsory military service. I know Israel is one as well. A lot of the Middle East too, yes. Mm, absolutely. Things like even in the US, they are still they still register people for the draft in the event that they will need to have another draft like Vietnam. They haven't, and I don't know whether they will, but they, they continue to register people for it so that if the thing if the situation arises, they could do it. So we've had two models which involve different types of service, one an environmental type of service, one including a police service. If I was to create a model for this debate, I would go much harder than that and just say every Australian must, at some point between the age of 18 and 30, complete two years of military service in which they fully join a military branch and become an actual member of that branch and therefore can be sent anywhere in the world and are just a, a normal member. So two years, which can be completed any time between the age of 18 and 30, as long as they are mentally and physically healthy and pass their checks. I will mention at this point, though, while that, may, while that might be what you're going for, as you present it to the audience and to the adjudicator, it probably should be a little bit shorter than that. Maybe. I don't know. I thought it was pretty clear. What do you think, Joel? You added a second sentence to re-explain everything, which I wouldn't do if I was just doing The, the thing is, well, that might be okay for an A and a B grade uh, debate where you will have the other team will completely try and pick apart your model in every conceivable way. You need to be mindful that in a JSP tournament, the first speaker will have to define the topic, they have to signpost for their team, and if they want to do a model as well and they've only got three to four minutes to do it in, then you need to be a little bit time conscious. We can't go too overboard with the models because the models, while helpful, you are getting most of your marks from your main arguments. No, that's very true. All right. Fair enough. Model was too long. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> the thing that Izzy did touch on a little bit in her model, though, which I will say is that you don't necessarily have to run with the model of 18 to 30. That is a wide range. You could just say as soon as you graduate from secondary school, congratulations, welcome to the Australian Defence Force. Here is the next three years of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's another valid model, and you could run with that if you want. You really need to balance out what do we think will be an effective model in terms of trying to achieve the goals set out by this topic. The other trap not to fall into, because I've seen it happen a lot, is please don't start talking about the legislative process, i.e. how you will make this a law. Assume that as the affirmative team, winning this debate automatically makes this law because I see a lot of teams who try and tell me that a bill will be introduced into the parliament and will pass the lower house and then get royal assent, and that's really? just not I, necessary. I just it's taking up time. Wand. Exactly. I just going to wave my wand and suddenly it's law. Bam. Wow. Yeah, that's what I would do as well. I would use my magic wand. So <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good point, Joel. Do remember that this is debate land, not the real world. And in debate land, you don't have to worry about passing your model through Parliament. It just automatically works. And, and the other thing is, for a topic like this, although it doesn't... Uh, for a few topics, you'll find cases where it's very ambiguous as to where we're talking. Is this 
Victoria, Australia, the whole entire world. In this case, going back to definitions for a second, it would be reasonable to define a topic like this as only taking place in Australia. Yes, so all debates in the DAB competitions, unless they specifically mention another country, are to be set within Australia. You are welcome to make it slightly narrower than that. I wouldn't recommend going more narrow than the state, unless it's specifically about something like school uniforms, then you could say... Our school. school. Yeah, but you're better off just saying Australia. If in doubt, Australia is the answer. Okay, so if you've made it this far into the podcast, congratulations. Clearly you're either enjoying us very much or you haven't yet found the off switch. I think it would be very beneficial now to talk about one of the Achilles heels of beginner debaters, rebuttal. Absolutely. I was just saying this to Alexander before we started recording. Rebuttal is my biggest piece of feedback when I adjudicate in JSP debates because it's really, really hard to do. Rebuttal is tricky because you can't practice it like you can practice a lot of other things in debating because you... Well, you can't practice it by yourself. Exactly. The way you practice it is by doing more debates. Yeah, exactly. You also can't pre-write it and bring it into the debate. Oh, you can. But we always know that it's pre-written. We do. One way we know that it's pre-written is we can see your palm cards are clearly typed. But the most important way we know it's pre-written is when the opposition did not say the thing you are responding to. I was going to say when you hear the same rebuttal from the, a different team from the same school, word for word. Oh, that's also tricky. <laughs> um, what I recommend if you are pre-writing your rebuttal is that you write it with lots of space on the card. So double, double spacing it so that you have plenty of space to adjust what's there to match properly what the opposition has said. So yes, get okay. a red pen ready. It's okay to think of ideas beforehand, write some stuff down and bring it in. Say, well, if they say this, I'll say this. But you have to be ready to adjust that to actually reflect what's happening in the debate. Please don't get us wrong. You should definitely be able to predict some of the ideas that your opposition will come up with. You should look at a topic and say, they're probably going to talk about something to do with society. They're probably going to have something to say about finance, you know, how expensive this will be. So it will be worth our while to perhaps think about how we could respond to an argument about how expensive something is or how slow it might be. But perhaps it's probably better if you don't go so far as to writing out word for word exactly what you're going to say if you're not going to do the hard mile at the end and adjust it as needed. Debating is like any other sport. You have to adapt to the situation you're in, not the situation you planned for. And so sometimes words need to be dropped, things need to change. Absolutely. So let's have a bit of an explanation of rebuttal. So the way that we teach rebuttal in the training sessions for you is as having three steps of rebuttal. The first step, what is their point? What did the opposition say? You can't rebut it if you don't know what it was. So make sure you tell us, your adjudicator, what they said so that we know what you're responding to. Two, why is it wrong? What's wrong with what they've said? Three, why am I right? So that's a very basic outline of three steps where you're trying to link back to your own material at the end. But it can be a little bit tricky when the opposition say something that's not wrong. For example, we should ban smoking because smoking causes cancer. You can't get up as the negative team and say, smoking doesn't cause cancer, they were wrong. What you do instead then, when they're not wrong, is show how their argument was not as important as your argument, right? So we don't mind if people die as long as they get to have a good time. 
It's one of my favourite things to say in debating these days <laughs> is uh, live hard, die young, uh, here for a good time, not for a long time, that sort of thing. I don't recommend you say those things, but that idea of we think it's more important that people are able to choose what to do with their own bodies than for us to keep them alive as long as possible. It's a quality versus quantity argument. Oh, what a much better way of putting it. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> and, of course, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There are other ways to approach that. You can take the line of it's their personal choice. They've made that decision, and if it shortens their lifespan, that's a conscious choice that they have made. Absolutely. That is another valid way to rebut that. Absolutely. So, so there's never an argument that you can't rebut. No. It might be hard to find them, especially if you're beginning. You might not be used to looking into some of the normal places where you might find a point that you could uh, disagree with them on, but there's always a way that you can rebut every argument. Very true. The heart of rebuttal is about comparison. You are comparing your case with the opposition's case and showing why your case is better, and you're trying to do that one argument at a time. And as Alexander said... You might have trouble finding where those arguments are. The advice I always give, listen to the team split of the other team. Ah, Joel's agreeing with me. (laughs) Yes, the piece of advice I always give to people that ask me how do I come up with more rebuttal is to literally have a piece of paper where you write down your team split and then their team split and you draw lines between arguments that are similar. Absolutely, and that's a really great exercise. Um, as well. If you ever, if you um, have any siblings or friends who debate or if you did house debating at school or anyone can give you two sets of arguments from one debate and you can practice matching them up, that can be really helpful because it shows you how to compare. Here's what they said and here is what we said. Here's how they relate. Here's how it mines better. I think maybe it might be helpful for people that perhaps aren't used to rebutting so much to instead of hear technical breakdown on what everything is, to maybe hear perhaps a few examples of how it works. And this is something that I'm hoping that if you're listening, you can perhaps play along with while you're listening to us. If you've got a friend or a sibling, definitely maybe bounce the idea off this because it helps with a little bit of thinking of where the rebuttal is, what can I say to respond and without having to obviously organise six people to debate. If I was to say that children should not be allowed to have their own smartphone, and I was the affirmative speaker, and I just said that if children don't have smartphones, then instead of staring at their screen all the time, they're going to be interacting with the world around them. They're going to be more social with other children rather than this interaction through a screen. What would be the first rebuttal that pops into your head if that was my argument? That smartphones are inherently social devices. The point of a phone is to communicate. So they are going to be more social with the phone by interacting with other people through phone calls, through text messages, through those apps that the young people use these days. I don't know, TikTok. Um, <laughs> what's the other one? WhatsApp. No, Instagram. The face Snap. Snapchat. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so then, Izzy, if you were then to make your own argument, what would your argument be? And let's see if Joel and I can respond to it. Um. All right. An argument that I would make is that children can use smartphones for learning through educational apps. The response that I would give to that would be linking it into the fact that it's a distraction for children. It's very easy to, instead of listening to your teacher or doing anything like that, you can instead get out your phone and play 30 different games all at once. 
yeah, on a smartphone with all these apps, a game is just a double tap of the home button away. It is. That's what it is. They don't have home They don't have home buttons. Oh, my iPhone is old. So The distraction is a big one, and coming from a school that had mandatory laptops for all the students, that's something that I always... So you can never trust the children to get their work done on their own laptop. No, absolutely. I spent a large proportion of year 11 playing pinball. The pinball that comes pre-installed oh, yes, on Windows. Yes, on Windows. And I'm sure you all know what goes on in the back row of your classroom. But that would be a rebuttal. You can say they're only increasing distraction. And when you've got a workbook or a textbook in front of you, it's the same material. It's the same words on a screen. It's the same words in a book. And it doesn't have a game in Appendix B that you can flick to at any time. All right. I have That's one rebuttal. more one more argument for you guys. See if okay. you can rebut this. So this is on the negative. Children should have their own smartphones for safety reasons. Because they are able to contact their parents in an emergency and also be followed or found or tracked by their parents in this in a situation where they go missing. Well, the assumption here is that the world is a dangerous place. And yes, everything is relatively dangerous at some point. But let's have a bit of perspective here. We are not in the middle of a war zone. And incidences of uh, things happening to children are fairly low in Australia. And where is the child most likely to be? Travelling from home to school on a school bus or in a family member's car with a responsible adult, then on the school premises where there's staff members everywhere, there's gates, visitors have to sign in, and then travelling back home again. And it's a similar story at a sports club. So it really shouldn't be necessary for a student to require something like that because there really shouldn't be any situation where they're likely to come into that kind of harm. And even if something were to happen, chances are there will be a responsible adult within a few metres that would be able to make the call anyway. The other way we could respond to that point that I would use would be to look at cyberbullying as an issue and question whether we're actually putting them in more danger by giving them access to something like giving Snapchat. giving other people access to them. There and are a lot of people online that should be in jail. Yes, and allowing them the ability to be tracked by people that maybe aren't their parents and are more dangerous is actually a bigger harm than them not having their smartphone, and that might be another way to rebut mm, that, that was point. A, a really Did good point. Did we just talk about comparing and contrasting without Mitchell Dye being on the podcast? We, what is happening? We really did. I think that was a really good piece of comparison there. So we've taken this argument about safety, phones are safer, and then you've shown, well, actually, phones aren't necessarily that safe, and specifically, the things that you think make it safe actually make it more dangerous, like that tracking technology and the ability to follow someone's phone. Using every aspect of the argument you're responding to and trying to show how that's actually in your favour, all of the details of that argument work in your favour and actually towards your case, is a really helpful way of showing that, well, no, their argument is not good and also our argument is brilliant, right? Which is the point of rebuttal. I will just note really quickly a couple of extra things about rebuttal. Rebuttal is not an opportunity for you to yell at the opposition <laughs> or tell them they're dumb or say, no, I can't take believe a, you said that. Let's take a step back. In debating, our goal is persuasion. Everything about debating is persuasion. And who are you persuading? 
your audience. If you're in any of my training groups, you would have heard this again and again, how the importance of persuasion in debating. And you are persuading your audience. You're never going to persuade the three people on the other side of the room. They are the three people you are basically guaranteed not to be able to persuade. So in your rebuttal, you're not trying to tell the other team where they are wrong. You're instead trying to tell the audience where they are wrong. So posing your rebuttals to the other team, facing the other team, looking at the other team or referencing the other team by anything other than first, second or third speaker of the opposing team or negative or affirmative team as it might be, isn't effective at persuading them because you are not persuading your opposing team, you are persuading the audience. Absolutely. You should always, I always say that once you're up there speaking, there is no one else in the room except you and the audience. The other team, your team, all disappeared, not there anymore. So make sure that you are addressing the audience and the adjudicator and make sure that you take your opposition at their very best. All right. So if you can beat them at their best, if you can take their argument and interpret it in a way that you think is best for them and still beat it with your rebuttal, then you will beat them no matter what. Right. Or you will beat that argument no matter what. It doesn't guarantee that you win the debate. (laughs) But if you can beat them at their best, you can beat them at their worst, right? You don't want to to sort of present their arguments as being worse than they actually were just because it's easier for you to rebut. Because the adjudicator was listening and they know what their argument was. So if you try to make it look worse just so you can have an easy slam dunk rebuttal, the adjudicator is going to say, but you didn't actually address what they were saying. That wasn't good rebuttal. And one last thing, while we're on the train of handy tips and little tricks that you can use in a junior secondary program competition to help with your rebuttals is a longer rebuttal is more effective than a series of short ones. More often than not, with rebuttals, it's very easy. You're listening to the other team and you're going, oh, that's wrong. And that's wrong. Oh, that's wrong as well. Oh, we didn't mean that. And we end up with a whole laundry list of all the things we want to address. And at the end of the day, we're trying to say, oh, they said this, but it's wrong. And the second speaker said that, but that's wrong because this. And the third speaker, that's not the point of rebuttal. The point of rebuttal is to respond to the ideas of the other team. While it is rebuttal to go through all the minor problems with the opposing team's case, it's not as helpful as perhaps only having one or two rebuttals as a first or second speaker and going through them in the detail and saying, well, here's what they said, and while this component might be correct, this is wrong. Here is the reasons why, here is the argument, here is the that, here's what we have, here is why it is better, and going, taking the time to explain your idea. And it will take longer, so you won't be able to cover every problem you have with the opposing team's case. But the handy tip there is take all the things you want to address, Rank them most important to least important and then take the top one or two if you're a first or a second speaker, a few more if you're a third speaker, and take the time to address them properly because that is going to be more persuasive than it is just hammering out a bunch of insubstantial small rebuttals that on their own don't really have much weight to them. The tip I often give to teams is that they should be using the same sort of structure to build their rebuttal points as they do their arguments. And there should be that sort of loose teal or peel structure used within it. 
a little bit shorter than you would for one argument, let's say, but you still want to be using that explanation skill and that linking skill when you're doing your rebuttals because, as Alexander was saying, it's not very useful to give us 15 one-sentence rebuttals. It's much better to give us three really good comprehensive pieces of rebuttal. Absolutely. Rebuttal is just like arguments. You need to explain it in detail, make sure it makes sense, chuck in an example if you can, um, really expand on it and show me why you think that that is, is or is not the case. What you can do and what you should do if you can in rebuttal is use that teal structure that we talk about in the training session and that you use in your arguments in your rebuttal as well. All right. So using teal is a good way of making sure that your rebuttal points are just as strong as your arguments are and making sure they're really well explained etc too. So to all the JSP debaters out there hopefully you have just taken a few notes and have something to take away from this episode to be able to apply to your upcoming debates to give them a bit of extra pop spark or make them just that little bit more persuasive to hopefully win you those extra points in your upcoming debates. And for those of you non-JSP debaters, we hope you enjoyed this covering of the basics. It never hurts to go over some of the more basic aspects of debating. Make sure that you're still right on track. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I periodically read the AADG, the rule book, and I learn something new every time. And I've been adjudicating seven years. So that's all for us for this month. Please stay tuned. Keep us in your favourites list on your favourite podcast app. And we will be back next time. Until then... Bye. Bye. Bye.